Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap, hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon and English study group where we study the words of the Buddha and we're moving into a new book titled Generosity. It's been about a year and a half that we've been studying in this program from volume two of this book series all the way until we've arrived here at volume 13, which is the last book of the book series. But even though it's the last book of the book series, it's actually really, really important to understand the practice of generosity. Without the practice of generosity, you'd be unable to actually get to enlightenment. And when you read the words of the Buddha and you see places where he's talking about his past lives and how he actually got to enlightenment in his last life without the help of any teachers or any guides, he attributes that to generosity and having practiced generosity throughout multiple lifetimes that's what ultimately led to him being able to eliminate craving desire attachment because that's one of the primary practices that you use in order to eliminate craving desire attachment the cause of discontentedness so for him to be practicing generosity over countless lives that's one of the things that allowed him and propelled him to being able to attain enlightenment on his own without any help of any teachers or guides in his last life and it's so utterly important that a practitioner understands this practice of generosity so even though it's the very last book it really is vitally important because it's helping you to eliminate craving desire attachment this is the cause of discontentedness so all the anger sadness frustration irritation annoyance guilt shame fear boredom loneliness the shyness, the resentment, jealousy, displeasure, dissatisfaction, all of these discontent feelings and others are being caused by the same underlying cause, which is craving desire attachment. This is why you don't need to run out and learn a hundred different meditations to address each individual discontent feeling because they're actually all being caused by the same thing. So breathing mindfulness meditation is a primary training that the Buddha points to, which helped propel him to enlightenment. But then he also points to generosity. These are two vitally important aspects of your practice that need to be developed. So we're going to be moving into this book, and this is going to finish us out all the way towards the end of January. And then we're going to be restarting the Pali Canon English study group from the very beginning. And this particular program, the way it's designed is people can actually join at any time. It would be wonderful to start from the very beginning and learn all the way through the year and a half, but you can actually start at any point in the actual series of the year and a half. And we just restart this over so that students can continue to learn. So welcome to all of you guys, whether you've been joining 
all the way through or whether you've just recently been joining these classes or you join them you know as you can essentially because moving into this first book you're going to be learning here at the beginning of the book through the chapters that are the words of the buddha helping you to understand what generosity is and why it's important and how to practice it the way that we start our class is we do a brief little meditation just to kind of ease the mind into the meditation and into the class and helping you to clear out anything that the mind might be holding on to so that then that way you can learn in the class and actually retain the teachings for a longer period of time and then apply them in your daily life. So I'd like to invite all of you to join for meditation and then after our brief meditation we'll move into studying the chapters that we've identified for today which is chapters 1 through 10. And if you've studied these ahead of time, that's wonderful. But if not, we're going to be studying them in class after the meditation. So go ahead and take your position, whether that's seated on the floor or in a chair. Get your lower body comfortable, your hands and arms. And then your upper body should be nice and erect. Then you're just going to close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. I'm going to do some chanting to ease us into meditation and then come back with some guidance to help you further get into meditation. Anu 
ดามาสติสัตตาวามานุสนังพุทโธภาควาติคุณเ
gradually make your way out of meditation and uh, I'll just remind you that this meditation is just a little top-up that typically what you're looking to do is build up your practice to be two or three times a day for 30 minutes or more per session that's what you'd like to ultimately build up to but of course it's going to take you time to do that so don't feel like you need to rush out and do that right away so now we're going to switch over to reading the individual chapters that we had planned to study today, which is chapters 1 through chapters 10. And this is where I just turn things over to all of you guys and specifically the moderators to organize individuals to read through each chapter. Then I'll share some teachings on that chapter and then open up to any questions that you guys might have on the various chapters. You can put your questions into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions that you like while you're in Zoom. So I'll go ahead and turn things over to all of you guys, and we'll go through and study the words of the Buddha today. Yes, thank you, sir. Uh, for chapter one, Tonka, could you read chapter one for us, please? 
sure. But here, students, some men or women give food, drink, clothing, carriages, garlands, scents, ointments, beds, dwelling, and lamps to ascetics or brahmins. Because of per performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body, after death, he reappears in a happy destination, even in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is wealthy. All right. Thank you, Tonka. So here, this brief little chapter at the very beginning just basically sets up for you what is generosity. And you can see what I share here is quite extensive. I think uh, I've got at least a couple of pages here just to kind of set up for you what is generosity and helping you to understand that what the Buddha is sharing here is that, of course, if you're practicing generosity, it in there's rebirth at the end of this life then there's going to be an improved rebirth either in a heavenly realm or if you're coming back to the human state then you're going to come back more wealthy and these aren't things that the buddha is like dangling as a carrot to try to convince you to actually donate and provide offerings to him for example uh, because remember he was extremely wealthy he was a prince destined to become the king if he was interested in money he would have just stayed there instead he realized that that isn't necessarily what's going to lead to contentedness peacefulness and joy so he left all that behind but what generosity is doing for you is it's eliminating craving desire attachment the mental longing and strong eagerness this is what's getting you closer and closer to enlightenment but also the very same things that are helping you to get closer and closer to enlightenment should you not actually get to enlightenment in this life and you're needing to be reborn those are the same things that lead to rebirth in the heavenly realm or coming back into the human realm and having a better condition than what you've had this time, perhaps the ultimate goal is to get to enlightenment and not experience rebirth at all. That's how you know that the Buddha is not dangling a carrot here. But instead, as a Buddha teaches, they're going to teach you all aspects of the path to enlightenment, which I refer to as the natural laws of existence of explaining to you true reality of what is actually occurring so the core teachings are all about helping you get to enlightenment eliminating discontentedness of the mind but of course students are going to ask well if i don't get to enlightenment you know what's going to happen there well as you're progressing closer and closer to enlightenment you're eliminating craving anger and ignorance or the unknowing of true reality you're also working on those individual fetters so those are the same things that are going to get you to enlightenment and should you not get to enlightenment for any reason having less of those things in the mind those pollutions of mind that's also what would lead to an improved rebirth either in the heavenly realm or in the human state coming back and being more wealthy for example here so ultimately your goal should be to get to enlightenment and practicing generosity is what's going to do that but if you fall short you can see here what the results are of actually practicing generosity as we go throughout the chapters tonight or today in our class then you're going to see some various benefits that the Buddha is talking about. And he revisits this where he talks in more detail about being reborn in the heavenly realm or coming back wealthy and other benefits of 
practicing generosity. But always remember the ultimate benefit of practicing generosity is to eliminate craving desire attachment. That's the ultimate benefit. And as you're making offerings, and you're going to learn in this book, the Buddha gives you guidance on how to make offerings in terms of, you know, having a calm mind, having a confident mind, having a joyful mind, things like this. He's going to give you guidance as we go throughout this book. But keep in mind that as he's talking about rebirth in the heavenly realm or being wealthy and other benefits that you're going to see, the ultimate goal is to get rid of craving, desire, attachment, because by eliminating those, you eliminate discontentedness. And by doing that, there is no rebirth because craving is the fuel that causes rebirth. So you're kind of like a two for one special here. If you like two for one specials when you go shopping, by getting rid of craving, desire, attachment, not only do you get to enlightenment and there's no longer any discontentedness in the mind, but you also never experience rebirth either. So you get two benefits because the same thing that's causing discontentedness is the same thing that's causing rebirth. Because with that mental longing and strong eagerness, the mind's chasing after the objects of its affection, it's still holding on. So it's holding on to certain things in this world, maybe wealth, maybe possessions, maybe relationships, all the different cravings the mind's holding on to. So that's why it's coming back into the world in one of these five realms of existence. But when you let those things go and you practice the middle way, this is why the mind becomes peaceful and joyful. And it's also why there's no longer rebirth in the cycle of rebirth, because there's nothing that the mind is holding on to that is going to bring you back into the world. So that's why when you let go of craving, desire, attachment, not only are you getting free of discontentedness and those strong feelings, but you're getting free of this whole cycle of rebirth. So I'll just turn things over to you guys for any questions that you might have on this particular chapter. Feel free to put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or raise your hand in Zoom and let me know what questions you guys have. It does not appear that there are any questions at this time, sir. Okay, so let's move on to chapter two. Yes, sir. Uh, Chrissy, ma'am, could you read chapter two for us, please? Yes, thank you, Miranda. What is accomplished in generosity? And what is accomplished in generosity? Here, a noble disciple resides at home with a mind free from the stain of selfishness, freely generous, open-handed, joyful in letting go, devoted to charity, joyful in giving and sharing. This is called accomplished in generosity. Thank you, Chrissy. So here the Buddha is saying, how do you get accomplished in generosity? Essentially, how do you bring generosity to full growth and development? How do you cultivate it such that you know that you're practicing in a way where the mind is freely generous? Well, here he gives you in a very short, you know, one sentence answer, a noble disciple. A noble disciple is someone who's practicing his teachings very closely. They're learning, reflecting, and practicing very closely. He refers to someone who's not doing that as an untrained worldling. So I might refer to this person as a non-practitioner, an untrained worldling. And I might refer to a noble disciple as a practitioner who's on the path to enlightenment, who's actively on the path, studying with the words of the Buddha, working together with a teacher, ensuring that they're actively developing their meditation practice and all the other factors of the Eightfold Path and doing that in a consistent and deliberate way. That's what a noble disciple is, someone who's 
essentially taking their journey to enlightenment uh, to heart. They're really active in this practice. So a noble disciple resides at home with a mind free from the stain of selfishness, right? Because when the mind's got this craving, desire, attachment, there's going to be a certain amount of selfishness. And the Buddha refers to this as a stain because the pollution of mind, of craving, anger, and ignorance, it's like a, a stain. The selfishness is a stain. It's essentially inhibiting you from being able to experience this radiance and this brightness of the enlightened mind. So we're taught as children to share. We're typically taught, you know, that when we're holding on to things, we don't share our toys. We're kind of taught to share. And we learn how to do this as children, how to share our toys, how to share our clothes, maybe how to play games with other children. But as we get older, there's not really anybody around advising us and kind of helping us to do that. And we don't necessarily understand as a child why we're being taught to do that. Well, the reason why is because when you have this stain of selfishness, then the mind has this craving, desire, attachment, and people don't like to be around selfish individuals. Like if not that you're expecting people to give you anything, but if somebody's very selfish and very stingy and holding on to things very tightly, you can feel that when you're around them and you probably, you know, don't appreciate that. You probably don't feel comfortable necessarily around that individual. As you get closer and closer to enlightenment, you'll feel comfortable no matter what, even if somebody's stingy. But that just kind of gives you an idea that if you're stingy or you have this stain of selfishness, it's most likely uncomfortable for other people because they can feel that. So what the Buddha is explaining here is to be freely generous, open-handed, joyful in letting go, you know, taking joy in practicing generosity, being devoted to charity, joyful in giving and sharing. This is how you know you're accomplished in generosity. Now, later in this book, he talks about various aspects of generosity, and he talks about you know, essentially practicing it in the middle way. Because if you had craving to practice generosity and you were just give, 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 give your time, your effort, your energy, and your resources in all these different directions to all these different individuals, that's going to potentially leave you depleted. But also, if you weren't ever practicing generosity and you were kind of dull and lethargic and kind of indifferent about doing this, that's not going to lead to beneficial results either. So it's important to practice this in the middle way where you're giving and sharing, having joy in doing that, and then finding ways to do that. Like even me at this stage in my life, I don't really have any money like I did at one time. At one time, I had lots of money. I had very little time. So I used to give a lot of money to charity because I had a lot of money and I didn't have much time. Now I have a whole lot of time, so I give my time. But I even give things like I go to the blood bank, to uh, the American Red Cross here in Chiang Mai, and I donate blood. This is a way to practice generosity because you're freely giving more than is strictly required. Your time, your effort, your energy, and your resources. When you're walking into a store and you're opening the door for yourself, if you just walk through the door, okay, that's what you do. But if you notice somebody behind you and you hold the door for them, that's generosity as well because you're giving your time, effort, energy, and resources more than is strictly required. If somebody drops something on the floor waiting at a cashier, and you pick it up and say, sir or ma'am, you know, you dropped this. 
that's generosity as well. You didn't need to do that. So there's all these different ways that you can be practicing generosity throughout your day. As you have learned potentially in other classes that I teach and as you'll learn in this particular book, the Buddha talks about practicing generosity in general, but then he talks about it practicing it towards the continuation of his, his teachings in order to give and share to produce merit, which will ensure the teachings continue. These are both generosity, just a matter of what direction you direct it towards. But you should be practicing generosity regularly throughout your day. Sometimes I even talk about just smiling at somebody is practicing generosity because that's time, effort, energy, and resources more than is strictly required. You're walking down the street, you see somebody, you just smile. You might wave, you might say hello as you're walking down the street. And what you'll notice is that people in your community will start relating to you as being this friendly, kind, loving, and caring person. And the more that you're that way with others, people will tend to be that way with you. So if you're interested in creating a more peaceful and loving society where we can be kind and gentle and compassionate with each other, if you kind of start that in your own practice and putting out this generosity through all the different ways that you can give and share, you'll see that that will be impactful. And the Buddha is gonna talk about some of the benefits of this here. But just understand that you would need to practice generosity from the middle way, right? If I'm on crutches and I've got a broken leg, I'm not going to be able to hold the door for people coming in behind me. That's not something that I'm able to do. But maybe at other times I am able to do that. So you're always looking to practice the middle way. And you should feel that you're willing to share essentially anything, right? Like if you have food, you'd be willing to share it with somebody. If you have funds or money you'd be willing to share it or if you have a home you might be willing to share it but then you need to have discernment you need to have wise decision making along with this generosity right it, you can't just go out and feed the whole world of homeless people because there's homeless people in a lot of different places in the world you would go broke feeding everybody and you can't just open up your home to anybody to could come in and have a sleep right this isn't discernment you need to make sure you're having discernment as you're practicing generosity and this is where you can bring your practice of generosity into the middle ensuring that you're doing it on a consistent ongoing basis but then doing that with wise decision making or discernment what questions do you guys have here does not appear there are any questions at this time sir okay so now we'll move into the purpose of giving with chapter three. Yes, sir. Uh, chapter three, a directly visible fruit of giving related to future lives. Is it possible, venerable sir, to point out a directly visible fruit of giving? It is, Sia. One, a donor, Sia, a generous giver, is dear and agreeable to many people. This is a directly visible fruit of giving. Two, again, wholesome persons go in large numbers to a donor, a generous giver. This too is a directly visible fruit of giving. Three, again, a donor, a generous giver, acquires a wholesome reputation. This too is a directly visible fruit of giving. Four, again, whatever assembly a donor, a generous giver approaches, whether of katyas, brahmins, householders, or ascetics, he approaches it confidently and composed. This too is a directly visible fruit of giving. Five, again, with the breakup of the body after death, 
A donor, a generous giver, is reborn in a good destination in a heavenly world. This is a fruit of giving related to future lives. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here, the fruit of giving is referring to the benefits. What are the benefits that you're experiencing as a result of giving? Now, in order to practice pure generosity, you need to be willing to practice the giving and sharing of more than is strictly required of your time, effort, energy, and resources without any expectations of anything in return. That's pure generosity. If you're giving a gift and it's got strings attached or expectations of something you want back from this person, or you want these things that the Buddha is describing, that's not actually pure generosity. So what the Buddha is doing is he's just explaining to you what are going to be the results of your generosity so that you understand that and you can see that. But you shouldn't essentially be trying to accomplish these things through your generosity. Your generosity should just be pure generosity, no strings attached, no expectations, nothing that you want from the individual, just as a way of practicing that freely giving, open-handed, the way that the Buddha talked about. But in order to cultivate wisdom, to understand why you're practicing generosity and what's kind of transpiring as a result of this natural law of gamma, the Buddha is explaining to you the natural law of gamma here. He does that all throughout his teachings. He's explaining to you the natural law of gamma. And here he's essentially explaining to you, well, if you give and you have this free giving of generosity and giving your time, effort, energy, and resources without any strings attached and no expectations, because of you being willing to do that and practicing generosity, here are the things that are going to transpire as a result of your action. This is going to be the result. So he's explaining the gamma or the results of your decisions. So he's saying a donor, a person who's generously giving, is going to be dear and agreeable to many people. Right? You probably have seen this as you show up to a party or a family event or something and you bring some gift for other people to share or some kind of food or dish to share. Or if you take your friends out to dinner or something like this, you see that you know people tend to really appreciate that. And that's what the Buddha is saying here is that you're going to be dear and agreeable to many. Then he talks about wholesome persons go in large numbers to the donor a generous giver. So people who are into wholesome things are going to see your wholesome qualities of being generous and giving. And what the Buddha is saying is wholesome people are going to come closer to you. And he talks in other parts of his teachings about how one of the primary aspects of practicing this path is to cultivate wholesome relationships around you. If you had unwholesome people who are into killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, substances that cause heedlessness and other unwholesomeness as part of this path, then it's going to be a real struggle for you to get to enlightenment because your mind is going to be influenced by this unwholesomeness around you. So the Buddha talks in other parts of his teachings about cultivating relationships with wholesome persons and not in a judgmental way, not looking at someone and like, oh, they're unwholesome. I can't associate with them. Not like that, but more with discernment and wise decision making. And you see somebody who's regularly lying or stealing, for example, and you just know that, okay, I'm going to choose not to be around this. I wish that person well. I don't wish them any harm. Don't look down on them or think you're above them or below them. But just in your mind, 
just know that, okay, if I'm around that, it's really unwise. So what you're doing as part of this path is cultivating wholesome relationships around you, but you're still doing the inner work to eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance. If you were just collecting wholesome people around you and you weren't doing the work, you're still not going to get to enlightenment. So you still need to do that work to eliminate the pollution of mind. And as you're doing that, your mind's going to be functioning through more and more wholesomeness, making wise decisions about all aspects of your life. And one of the aspects of your life is to cultivate relationships with people who are into wholesome things. And this is why oftentimes a community like this that we have, people tend to become quite close friends without attachment, but they become close friends because a lot of places in the world, you know, people are into a lot of unwholesome things. So people who are into wholesome things are people that you meet at retreats or in online communities like this or different classes and courses that might be taught about these teachings. You'll meet people who are into doing that inner work and cultivating their mind, developing their life. But the Buddha is also sharing here that as you practice generosity, wholesome people are going to essentially be attracted to you. But there can also be the potential that unwholesome people are attracted to your you know, generous offerings and generous giving as well. So you that's where your discernment comes in. That if you see that people are regularly accumulating around you that have some a lot of unwholesome qualities and you're knowing that that's unwise for you to associate with that, you might choose to maybe not associate with that and move towards people who are more wholesome. So the Buddha is saying essentially that it'll be easier for you to cultivate this group of people around you, your friends, family, other people that are wholesome through being generous and giving. And then he talks about it'll help you to develop a wholesome reputation because as you practice generosity, you'll get the reputation of, wow, he's so giving or she's so giving or she's so kind or he's so kind. You'll hear these kind of things. Not that you're looking to accomplish that. That's not why you should be giving but that's just what's going to happen. That's what the Buddha is helping you to understand. If you had the desire, the craving to get a wholesome reputation, and that's the reason why you're choosing to give, that's a decision based out of craving. So it's actually not going to happen for you. That gift, that generosity is not going to produce the qualities of mind that you need to improve the quality of the mind and get to enlightenment. In your gifts, your donations, your generosity in all the different directions you might choose to practice it. It's tainted with this craving, this desire, this attachment. So you shouldn't have the desire to get this wholesome reputation, but just know that that is what's going to occur as part of practicing generosity. The Buddha talks here in number four about how essentially you'll have this confidence as you approach various Uh, groups of individuals in various communities. This group of people that he's referring to as katyas, this is a group of people that existed during his lifetime. They essentially had an area, kind of a region. They're kind of an ethnic group. And the Buddha actually uh, admired these people in his teachings. And he talks about how they actually are practicing really good qualities of life. And they were very prosperous. They were very joyful, very peaceful in their community. They were living life very well. They 
were doing that long before the Buddha was around. It was just that these people, you know, these natural laws of existence, people can learn these in different ways and they can cultivate that wisdom in their community. I don't necessarily know that there was any enlightened beings in that community, but the Buddha talks about them at different times in his life during his teaching and his discourses about how they're practicing certain aspects of the path to enlightenment very, very well, even without having necessarily learned his teachings. So these are essentially like really wholesome people who are into really wholesome things. Brahmin are essentially priests of that time, right? And then there's household practitioners who are learning the teachings of the Buddha. And then there's aesthetics who are people who are on the path to enlightenment, having given up their worldly possessions to be able to get to enlightenment. These are essentially wholesome individuals that he's referring to here. Because if you're into unwholesomeness and you know this, when you approach certain individuals or certain communities, you might lack confidence and you might feel diminished because in the, your mind, you kind of know that you're into unwholesome things. But if you're practicing this path, you know it well, you're practicing it well, including something like generosity, then what the Buddha says is you can approach these wholesome communities with confidence because you know you're doing wholesome things. Whereas if you approach wholesome people knowing you're doing unwholesome things, you might lack confidence. You might be unable to look people in the eye, for example. So when you're practicing the wholesome path and there's this joy in the mind, there's this peacefulness in the mind, then you can approach these various wholesome communities with confidence. You might think about this like going to see the government or going to a business presentation or going to a company for a job interview. If you know that you're doing wholesome things, you know you're practicing something like right speech really well, you can approach into these environments with confidence. And if you're practicing generosity, you can go into these communities with confidence. Whereas if you weren't practicing these good wholesome teachings, maybe you would lack that confidence. You wouldn't perform as well in those given environments. And then lastly, you're going to see this general theme throughout this book where the Buddha reminds people that by practicing generosity, it leads to a improved destination if there's rebirth. But as I mentioned, always keep in mind that the goal of practicing generosity is to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. The goal of this path is to eliminate all craving, desire, attachment. So you eliminate discontentedness. Thus, the mind is enlightened and there's no longer any rebirth. That's the ultimate goal. But the same thing that leads to enlightenment also leads to an improved rebirth if you needed to be reborn for any reason. So that's why he's always including that as part of the benefits of practicing generosity. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Yes, sir. Because when this generosity is practiced with, as you said, strings attached, if we are practicing generosity with the expectation of getting something in return, we're not going to get that thing in return. Is the wise thing to do to know the effects of generosity, but then really to kind of put that out of the mind and just practice generosity for the sake of practicing generosity for arising that wholesome mental state, sir? 
Exactly. This is helping you to understand the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect, so that as it's happening, you're aware, right? So like if all of a sudden you start having all these wholesome people around you, or you start getting this good reputation in your community, you know, you start having these agreeable people around you, you start noticing your confidence is arising more and more. The Buddha is explaining to you that this is what's going to happen. This is how you can help to remove any doubt about his teachings because he's sharing with you, okay, practicing generosity is essentially eliminating craving, desire, attachment. That's going to lead to less and less discontentedness. You can see that occurring as you practice generosity, less and less discontentedness is in the mind, and thus you start eliminating this doubt about his teachings because he's telling you what's going to happen before it actually happens. And now here with this, he's going into more detail about what's actually going to happen before you actually maybe are even practicing generosity very much. If you're a generous person already, you might see some of these aspects that are actually occurring in your life. And this is how you can have the confidence in his teachings and remove doubt. Because here he taught 2,500 years ago and he's explaining what it is that you're experiencing right now today based on practicing generosity. So yes, put this to the side, but just know that this is what's going to occur and it's helping you to understand the natural law of gamma better and better. And this might be incentive for you to maybe teach your children to give and share or teach other people around you who are interested in learning. Because maybe if your children, you know, don't have very many friends, for example, you don't necessarily have to tell them, oh, if you take cupcakes to school, you're going to have lots of friends. You know, that's not what you're interested in doing. But maybe you just help them along because you see that they're having difficulties making friends at school. And because you know this is the benefit, maybe you send them to school every once in a while with some cupcakes or with some candy or with some gifts or things like that. Or you take them to the Salvation Army and you you know, help them to give gifts to the Salvation Army or the Goodwill. Or you go down to a homeless shelter and you practice giving your time, effort, and energy and resources to a homeless shelter and things like this. And this will help your children and you to cultivate this mind of generosity and you'll see these benefits. So where you see people that are struggling with certain aspects of their life these are generosity might be something that you see that they're not practicing very well and that's why they're struggling to maybe have wholesome friends for example and then you can recommend practicing some generosity and if they ask why then you know how to explain that to them so knowing the underlying benefits is going to help you in your practice but you shouldn't be practicing generosity for the sake of these things, but just know that they are going to occur. And then as they're occurring, this will help you to eliminate more and more doubt about the Buddhist teachings because he's explaining to you what's going to happen before it actually even happens. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Uh, it appears there are no other questions at this time. Okay, so let's go to chapter four. Yes, sir. Uh, Tonka, ma'am, can you please read chapter four for us? Yes, thank you, Miranda. Chapter four, five benefits of giving. Monks, there are these five benefits of giving, but five. One, one is dear and agreeable to many people. Two, wholesome persons go in large numbers to one. Three, one acquires a wholesome reputation. 
four, one is not deficient in the householder's duties. Five, with the breakup of the body after that, one is reborn in a good destination, in a heavenly world. These are the five benefits of giving. By giving, one becomes dear, one follows the duty of the wholesome. The wholesome mentally dis disciplined monks always go in large numbers to one. They teach one the teachings that dispels all discontentedness, having understood which the taintless one here attains Nibbana enlightenment. Okay, thank you, Tonka. So there's just a couple things here that are different than the previous discourse. The Buddha was famous for this. When he's teaching these discourses and you're reading them, you might think from the prior discourse, like, okay, that's all the benefits or that's all the fruit, right? But he actually explains at different times, helping you to see from different angles of what are the true benefits of giving, for example. So when you see something like the five benefits of giving, this isn't the only five benefits. So he's going to add some more and more. It's like a layered approach. He's pulling back more and more layers, helping you to see more and more of what he's talking about. So in this particular discourse, the one thing that's different or one of the things that's different is this one here. The other four out of the five are similar. And then he says something down here that's a little bit different. But here he's talking about one is not deficient in householders' duties. So in terms of a community who's interested in learning and practicing the teachings of the Buddha and developing these teachings in your community, there would need to be various people who are willing to support the aesthetic practitioners, the ordained practitioners and teachers, people like me. The reason why I'm able to share these teachings with all the different people around the world is because there's people who's willing to support what I'm doing in terms of allowing me to purchase Zoom and purchase live streaming supplies and lights and microphones and computers and things like this. The donations that are given to us, we use that in order to pay for gas to get to the temple, for example. And I use it for purchasing a carpet at the temple to create an environment for people to come learn and things like this. We use some of these donations to support our life, like food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical care. But we also use a good portion of these donations as a way to support our community and essentially give it right back to you. So the giving and sharing that's happening from the students to the teacher, the teacher is also giving and sharing right back as well. So the teachers have a certain responsibility that they've chosen based on their own life to share these teachings in the world without any expectations of anything from their students. And then if we appreciate that and we're not interested in teachers having a price to get to enlightenment or a entry fee to courses and a price to join an online program like this. If we enjoy that teachers are doing this because they're able to help a significant number of people much more than if they actually charged, then by us supporting teachers and providing offerings, then we're not deficient in householders' duties. So we're able to support aesthetics or ordained practitioners were able to support teachers in the world so that they can teach you but also they can help many other people in the world as well and that's part of what you might choose to practice as your practice rather than just take 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 from whatever teachings are being shared with you but instead you find a way to also give 
because it's like paying it forward. For many generations, for 2,500 years, people have been practicing generosity all the way until now that these teachings have reached you. And now your practice of generosity is helping you to train your mind, but it's also helping future generations to be able to access these teachings. So your children, your nieces, your nephews, your younger brothers and sisters, other people around the world, there's people that can access these teachings now that weren't able to access them previously. So by me being able to put books online for free, me being able to have these classes for free, I've had people from remote islands off the coast of Africa and off the coast of India send me messages and say, you know, we don't even have a library on our island for me to be able to pursue education about Buddhist teachings. But because your books are available online, I'm able to download them and actually learn where otherwise I would have no ability to learn these teachings whatsoever if it wasn't for your books online. Well, the only reason why I'm able to do that is because householders Students that study with me, they're not deficient in their householder duties. They've decided that, yes, I would like to support this individual to be able to share their teachings. And then that benefits you through eliminating craving, desire, attachment. It benefits you that you're able to learn the teachings through supporting this particular teacher. And you're able to provide offerings that help a whole lot of other people that could also potentially make donations at some point, but maybe not. There's people in small villages in Africa that, you know, make $50 a month and that's what they live on is $50 a month. Or there's people in India and Bangladesh and Nepal and Sri Lanka and places like this that will never be able to ever provide any type of donation in terms of financial support to me potentially. But they can still practice generosity in all these other various ways. So by people supporting through not having deficiency in their householder duties, supporting teachers that are sharing these teachings, they're available for you and lots of other people in the world as well. So that's what the Buddha is talking about here, is uh, ensuring that we see this as a part of our responsibility to ensure that we're practicing in a way that helps others. And just to give you guys an example from my life, when I was in business and I was making lots of money, I was connected to the temples in the Washington, D.C. area, but I wasn't learning anything from them over all the different years. I just kind of brought them in to do different things within our business and so forth. But I was still giving about $1,000 a month to the temples. And I was giving to charities and local schools and different places as well. But because I had a lot of money, I was able to give, but I wasn't getting anything whatsoever in terms of benefit from the temple because I wasn't visiting the temple in order to learn or practice or anything like this. But my interest as a householder was just to support this temple and allow it to continue to help people in various ways. So these are things that you can do that you might choose to make offerings of your time, effort, energy, and resources to help a temple or help a teacher, but also the generosity that you practice should be directed towards other aspects of your life too. Like I mentioned some of those examples. Then the Buddha talks down here about how essentially teachers, ordained practitioners, go in large numbers to one who is practicing generosity to produce merit because during his lifetime they weren't able to 
and, and still today, they're not able to cultivate their food. They're not able to make their food. They're not able to essentially provide any of their own basic necessities for life. Their food, their water, their clothing, their shelter, their medical care all needs to come from the household practitioners. So in order for ordained practitioners to exist, this is what they need. And then what the Buddha is saying is, okay, you're going to essentially have ordained practitioners around you if you practice generosity. And what that leads to is that leads to being able to learn the teachings so that you can eliminate discontentedness. By learning and practicing the teachings, then you can train your mind to eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance along with the 10 fetters. And that's what the Buddha is talking about here, having understood which the taintless one. Taintless means without pollution of mind because a taint is pollution. So taintless is without pollution. And then he's saying, okay, if you essentially are practicing generosity, you're going to have ordained practitioners, teachers that are around you. You're going to be able to learn these teachings. You're going to be able to understand what it takes to be able to eliminate pollution of mind. And then through that practice, it's going to help you to attain enlightenment. So even though you know that this is one of the benefits, as we've been talking, just set that aside and just look to practice generosity without any strings attached. That you might decide to practice generosity without any Thing whatsoever that you want out of giving this gift. Instead, you're just giving just for the sake of giving. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear we have any questions at this time, sir. Okay, so let's go to chapter five. Yes, sir. Uh, Chrissy, ma'am, could you read chapter five for us, please? I can, yes. Thank you, Miranda. A donor who gives food gives life beauty, peacefulness, and strength. Monks, when a donor gives food, he gives the recipients four things. What for? He gives life, beauty, peacefulness, and strength. One, having given life, he takes part in life, whether heavenly or human. Two, having given beauty, he takes part in beauty, whether heavenly or human. Three, having given peacefulness, he takes part in peacefulness, whether heavenly or human. Four, having given strength, he takes part in strength, whether heavenly or human. Monks, a noble disciple who gives food gives the recipients these four things. One who respectfully gives time, timely food to those mentally disciplined, ones who eat what others give, provides them with four things, life, beauty, peacefulness, and strength. The man who gives life and beauty, who gives peacefulness and strength, will obtain long life and fame wherever he is reborn. Monks, a donor who gives food, gives the recipients five things. What five? He gives life, beauty, peacefulness, strength, and discernment. One, having given life, he takes part in life, whether human, heavenly or human. Two, having given beauty, he takes part in beauty, whether heavenly or human. Three, having 
given peacefulness, he takes part in peacefulness, whether heavenly or human. Four, having given strength, he takes part in strength, whether heavenly or human. Five, having given discernment, one takes part in discernment, whether heavenly or human. A donor who gives food gives the recipients these five things. The wise one is a giver of life, strength, beauty, and discernment. The intelligent one is a donor of peacefulness and in turn acquires peacefulness. Having given life, strength, beauty, peacefulness, and discernment, one is long lived and famous wherever he is reborn. All right. Thank you, Chrissy. So here, the Buddha is talking about by giving food, which is one of the offerings that you can give to individuals, whether it's a ordained practitioner, a teacher, or even your family or friends or people that are around you. Specifically, the Buddha here is talking about giving food to individual teachers or ordained practitioners. He's saying down here at the very bottom, I'll show you guys this, uh, where he says, one who respectfully gives timely food to those mentally disciplined ones. That's what he's talking about. People who are essentially training their minds towards enlightenment. In, in other teachings in this book, you'll see that he gives eight individuals that he says, okay, it's very wise to give gifts to these eight individuals. He talks about any of the four stages of enlightenment. If somebody's established in either the first, second, third, or fourth stage of enlightenment, it would be very wise to give gifts to those individuals. And then he talks about people who are practicing to get into the first, the second, third, or fourth stage of enlightenment. Because by you practicing where you're giving offerings to the mentally disciplined ones, the ones who are in one of these four stages of enlightenment or practicing to get into one of the four stages of enlightenment, you would have to have a certain amount of wisdom to be able to discern that, whether they were in one of those four stages of enlightenment or not. And if you're making offerings to people in those four stages of enlightenment, you're coming in contact with them to be able to learn the teachings and grow and then essentially get further on the path for you. It's not that there's any mystical, magical thing that if you gave an offering to an otter hunt, an enlightened being, for example, there's not any mystical, magical thing like, wow, okay, you're immediately going to get to heaven or you're immediately going to get a long life or anything like this. But instead, you're coming in contact with people who deeply understand these teachings and by you making them offerings, you're probably going to sit there with them while they eat and maybe talk to them and ask them questions or you know, after they eat, you might ask them questions and try to understand the teachings better. That's what's actually leading to this. Because these benefits that the Buddha is talking about is that you're giving life, so therefore you take part in life, meaning that you're going to essentially have a longer and longer life. The reason why is because you're learning teachings from these individuals. You're cleaning up your unwholesome decisions by making wise decisions is leading to wholesome outcomes. So you'll find that by learning and practicing these teachings, cultivating the mind, that you'll have a longer lifespan. And likewise, you'll have more beauty. We were talking about this before class, about how as somebody trains their mind and brings it more and more into the middle, that there's this radiance, this brightness of your complexion that tends to occur. You can look at pictures of people 
that are practicing these teachings closely today and oftentimes their complexion and their beauty is more than you know eight or ten years ago perhaps they look younger perhaps than eight or ten years ago because they're now training their mind they're making wise decisions their mind's now functioning optimally so the body is going to be functioning more optimally so you get a clearer complexion more brightness more radiance in the face and then likewise if you're practicing the teachings closely you're also getting this more peacefulness right because the mind is making wiser decisions to train the mind this peacefulness is coming into the mind and you're gaining this confidence or this strength that the buddha's talking about so it's not like there's a mystical magical thing that's happening that okay you can just give a gift and then walk away and then you're going to get these four things instead it's because you're coming in contact with individuals who are mentally disciplined because they have trained their mind and they can control their mind because they deeply understand these teachings and they train their mind really well. And now you're getting more and more ability to access the teachings by interacting with those folks. And then that's why a person who gives gifts to mentally disciplined ones experiences a longer life, more beauty, more peacefulness, and more confidence or more strength. That's what the Buddha is talking about here. And then he's saying, okay, if you need to be reborn, then you're going to receive a longer life there and fame as well. This is because the craving desire attachment has been diminished through practicing generosity. There's less craving desire attachment. So therefore, you're going to have better results in your next life. But remember, always keep in mind, the goal is to get to enlightenment in this life, not to experience the next life. And then in this other part of the discourse he's explaining essentially the same thing with adding some more things towards the bottom which are the same things but he's just wording it in a slightly different way this is how a teacher might choose to talk they might choose to talk in repetition because if you just say something once as a teacher maybe you spark spark the interest of your student but then by speaking it in repetition they start focusing in on what you're saying. So by saying it as a teacher two or three times, a student's able to kind of absorb it in the mind and retain it for longer periods of time. So this is a common thing that you'll see in the Pali Canon where the Buddha talked in repetition. He talked repeatedly over and over and over again. And not only the same topic, but the same sentence structure and the same wording he used repetitively over and over and over again because this is a learning tool because remember he was only working with the oral tradition and as an oral tradition the way that you get people to remember your teachings is one you tell stories like similes right jesus spoke this way too he spoke in parables where if you tell a story people will tend to remember your story better and then thus they'll remember your teachings but the other way is you speak in repetition. By speaking in repetition, then the students can absorb that as well. And then the other thing you do is you give lists, right? This is what the Buddha is very famous for, giving lists, right? Like the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, the Four Noble Truths, the Five Factors of Well-Spoken Speech. You give lists, and then students' mind can remember this. So that's essentially what this other discourse is. It's just repeating the same thing, essentially, um, and just saying it a different way in order for the student's mind to better retain it and then be able to recall it later and actually practice it. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Uh, yes, sir. I see that Tonka has her hand raised. Let's go to her for the question. Thank you, Miranda. 
I was wondering about giving discernment. Like, how do we give discernment, Teacher David? Essentially, what you're doing is by somebody being taken care of with food, now they can make wise decisions. Whereas if you're hungry, you know, you're lacking the ability to have food, which is what the Buddha is talking about here, you're not able to make wise decisions when you're hungry, for example. Your mind is maybe worried about eating and where you're going to get your next meal from. So a person, discernment is wise decision-making. An individual would have to have wisdom on board in order to make wise decisions. But if they're overly hungry, and they're lacking the subsidence that they need to sustain their life, then they're not going to be able to make wise decisions. So that's how you're giving discernment is that you're helping them to have the nutrition they need on board to now the body is satisfied. So now they can go into the mind and make wise decisions. I see. And also, uh, could we add to all those benefits like uh, health? For example, uh, Buddha is not saying health uh, in particular, but if we have long life, if we have strength, if we have peacefulness, that would translate in a good health as well, correct? Exactly. That's why there's the long life, that as you have more wisdom and you're making wiser decisions and you're the mind isn't stressed, the mind doesn't have anxiety, there's not the anger and sadness, the mind is unburdened as you get closer and closer to enlightenment because you're getting rid of craving, desire, attachment, the mind becomes unburdened, so therefore it doesn't put a burden on the body. You know, if you have a lot of stress and anxiety in the mind, this is gonna put burden on the heart, the lungs, and other organs, and your lifespan is gonna be shortened. So by you learning these teachings and thus practicing generosity in order to come in contact with people where you can learn these teachings, you're eliminating discontentedness because you're eliminating craving, desire, attachment through practicing generosity. But by having less discontentedness in the mind, it's less impactful to the body. So now you actually have a better, longer lasting life. Okay. Thank you, Teacher David. You're welcome. It appears those are all the questions we have at this time, sir. Oh, wait. No, I see Chrissy raised her hand. Let's go to her prayer question. Sorry, I was a little late on raising my hand. Thank you, Miranda. Um, I was wondering if um, generosity to a practitioner, does this create merit? So the Buddha talks in different parts of his teachings, he talks about the increasing amount of benefit that you experience based on the individual that you're giving to. So if you just gave to just a regular household practitioner, for example, there's benefit that you're getting in terms of eliminating craving, desire, attachment, but you're not going to get the same benefit as if you gave to like someone who's a stream enter or a once returner, a non-returner, an arahant, and then a Buddha. Making an offering to a actual Buddha is like the highest individual that you could make an offering to, and not highest in terms of they are higher, but in terms of there's more benefit for you. And the reason why, again, it's not a mystical, magical thing. It's that if you're coming in contact with an actual Buddha during your lifetime and you have the opportunity to make an offering to that person and maybe repeated offerings, then you're coming in contact with them to be able to learn the teachings. And this is going to drastically improve your ability to get closer and closer to enlightenment. So there is benefit in making an offering to a 
you know, average household practitioner, it's not merit unless it's directed towards somebody who is sharing these teachings and your offering to support that household practitioner is going to directly benefit the sharing of teachings. So there's there's generosity, which is just the freely giving more than is strictly required of your time, effort, energy, and resources. And you can practice generosity towards anybody and everybody. But when you practice generosity towards the continuous sharing of Gautama Buddha's teachings, this is what we call merit. So it would need to be towards a temple, a teacher, somebody who's actively involved in sharing or some effort to actively uh, share the teaching. So like we have those retreats that uh, students are starting to work on now for next year in the USA. If there's somebody who was going to make an offering to give to the retreat, that's producing merit because they're sharing their time, effort, energy, and resources to be able to now get this retreat to the point where people can participate in it and actually benefit from the giving and sharing of teachings. So that's merit. But if you are walking down the street and you helped somebody walk across the street, you helped a a person walk across the street who was maybe disabled, that's generosity and that's beneficial for you in your practice. But it's not merit because that person isn't sharing the teachings, for example. Okay. Um, can I ask one more question? You can ask 10 more if you'd like. Okay. I remember that last year with the retreat, we had um, a fundraiser to donate to that. Do we have anything like that set up for this year? I haven't seen anything like that yet. Yes. Miranda and Aaron set this up as part of the retreat. They're just starting to kind of, uh, you know, they they went through a whole lot of work to set up the retreats online. And now they're mm-hmm. starting to communicate it out to people. So I'm sure you could access it from our website, buddhadailywisdom.com. And you go to classes, courses, retreats. And then from there, you scroll down, you'll see the retreats. And if you click on that, it'll take you to the details of the retreat. And as part of the details of the retreat, there's a way to donate to the retreat if you would like to do that. Okay, thank you, sir. And then one more thing. Um, We've spoke about this in the past, and I'm not sure if I remember the answer, but if there is a craving for generosity, like a craving to be generous, then that kind of eliminates the benefits, right? Like if you're craving to be generous and to donate, um, but still trying to practice the middle way with discernment, does that then eliminate the benefits of generosity? It doesn't eliminate the benefits, but because there's two ways to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. There's because that's the real goal of what you're doing on this path, in addition to everything else, is eliminating craving, desire, attachment. You can cut off craving, desire, attachment. Like if you had a craving to snort cocaine, for example, you know that that's unwholesome and you need to cut that off and let it go because it's not going to lead to anywhere beneficial. There's no medical benefits to snorting cocaine, for example. So you would be interested to cut that off and let it go and, and not allow 
the mind to make the decision to do that. But certain craving, desire, attachments, one of the ways to eliminate it is, yes, you can cut it off and let it go, but you can also fulfill it. And that's one of the ways to actually let it go. So if I had a craving, desire, attachment to visit the Philippines and I've always wanted to go to the Philippines, I can cut that off and let it go and train the mind to do that. Or the other option is just go to the Philippines, take a vacation, look around, see things. And then you kind of cross it off and like, all right, been there, done that, that craving's done. So if there's a craving for generosity and a craving to give and share, you would like to restrain that and practice generosity in the middle way. But in sometimes one of the ways to do that is to practice generosity with your time, your effort, your energy, and your resources and see that you are doing that so that you get to a point where you're comfortable with the level of generosity that you're practicing. So it's not that you're not getting any benefits at all. It's that if you're practicing generosity with expectations of things that you want out of that situation, you're still getting some benefits, but it's tainting the purity of your generosity. So you'd like to get any expectations out of the way. But if you have a craving for the practice of generosity, one of the ways to diminish that and eliminate that is to practice generosity and then find more and more of the middle way so that you can practice in a way where you are giving and sharing, but you're not overdoing it where you don't have the time, effort, energy, or resources that you need to sustain your life. So we need to find that middle where we're not selfish and holding on to things, but we're also not giving excessively where we don't have the things that we need for our own life. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Um, yes, sir. On YouTube, Max asks, do we need to bring up merit and generosity in our practice? Yes, you would need to practice both of these things in order to get to enlightenment is the Buddha talks about having essentially a daily practice of generosity. So that's where, you know, you're holding the door for somebody when you walk into a store or you notice somebody drops a pin on the floor as they're going through their purse to pay a cashier. You might pick up the pin or, you know, you're getting a shopping cart at the grocery store rather than just grab one for yourself and go shopping. Maybe you grab one and hand it to the next person who's behind you and you're like, here, this is for you. So you can do these kind of things on a consistent, regular, ongoing basis. You should be practicing generosity daily. And these are things that don't cost you any money. It's just your time, effort, energy, or resources. And sometimes it's only a five second thing or a 20 second thing. And it's really easy for you to do. And it creates an environment and a society where people are all helping each other. I can tell you so many stories about living here in Thailand where people have helped and done things that they just didn't need to do at all. And it's just amazing and it blows your mind when you first come here and you see how people practice generosity and it creates such a loving and kind environment. So you would need a practice of generosity on a consistent ongoing basis. And if an entire society is doing this, an entire population of people, wow, it becomes such a real loving and warm place to exist. But then you would also, as part of your generosity, you would like to have 
a certain aspect of your practice that is sharing your time, effort, energy, and, or resources towards the continued sharing of Gautama Buddha's teachings. Because if you're getting benefit from the teachings, you would also like to see others benefit as well. And this is one of the ways that you can do that is practice generosity towards the continued sharing of his teachings. And this is also helping you to eliminate that fetter of doubt that if you have doubt about the teachings, you're not going to be willing to give your time, effort, energy, and resources to help the continuation and the sharing of these teachings. But if you've developed your practice to a point where you absolutely know that these teachings are leading to an improved condition of mind and an improved condition of life, then you would be willing to share your time, effort, energy, and resources. You might not be enlightened yet, but you know through whatever amount of work that you've done, perhaps, that yes, these teachings are indeed improving my life and improving the condition of the mind. So let me put some generosity in here. And now you're going to see even more benefits because you're practicing generosity. And then this is going to help other people in the world because you're directing it towards the continued sharing of Gautama Buddha's teachings. So this is a more potent type of generosity because you're producing merit. That's why we call it differently than just regular generosity. You would need to practice just regular generosity, but you would also need to cultivate merit, which is a much more potent and powerful type of generosity because you're directing it towards the continued sharing of these teachings. So that means many other people would be able to benefit from learning and practicing these teachings. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. It does not appear there are any other questions at this time. Okay, so let's go to chapter 6. Yes, sir. I'll read chapter 6. A donor who gives medicine gives beauty, peacefulness, and strength. Brahmin, there are these ten advantages from kanje, rice porridge that is very nutritious, but serves the purpose of medicine. What ten? In giving kanje, one gives life, one gives beauty, one gives ease, one gives strength, one gives intelligence. Kanje, when it is drunk, checks hunger, keeps off thirst, regulates wind, cleanses the bladder, digests raw remnants of food. These Brahmin are the ten advantages of kanje. To the discerning one who gives kanje duly at the right time to one who lives on others' food, it confers ten things on him. Life and beauty, ease and strength. For him, intelligence arises from it. It dispels hunger, thirst, and wind. It cleanses the bladder. It digests food. This medicine is praised by the welfarer. Therefore, kanje should be given constantly by a man interested for ease, by those aspiring to become heavenly beings, like joys, or acquiring human prosperity. All right. Thank you, Miranda. I'm not sure if you guys have ever had kanji. You can actually get this. A lot of Chinese restaurants will have a kanji and they have some things here in Thailand that are similar to this. We call joke. It's like rice porridge and it's very nutritious. It's very filling in the stomach. And then if you look back to the teachings of the Buddha in the Pali Canon, they actually talk about the ingredients that they have in this rice porridge and different things that they put into it, even more so than what I've experienced nowadays in the Chinese version of kanji or the Thai version of this. It seems like what they were 
putting in the the rice porridge back then was even more nutritious than what I see us putting into it today. So the Buddha is explaining that this is a very nutritious food to be able to give as part of an offering. So he's helping people to see the types of offerings to give. And now today, you know, we might encourage somebody to give fruit, right? That's very nutritious or vegetables because if we are conscious about the type of offerings that we make in terms of food, then this is going to be beneficial to the other person in terms of what they're ingesting. But also it's beneficial to your mind that you're not just going to the store, grabbing a bunch of stuff, throwing it in the cart, and then just chucking it over to the teacher or chucking it over to the temples, but you're actively putting thought into what can this individual use and what would be very beneficial. It's wonderful to be able to make offerings of financial resources to help a teacher because that gives them the flexibility to be able to purchase the things that they need. And if you're making offerings to a teacher, you most likely have trust that they're using that those funds wisely. But it also takes a lot more effort from a student to go out to the store and purchase things that a teacher might need, for example. You would need to kind of understand the teacher. You know, what type of personal care products and hygiene products do they use? What kind of foods do they eat that is helpful for them and is good for their body? These are kind of things that you learn from being around a teacher. And then when you go out to the store, if you're consciously purchasing these things, then this can be really helpful for your mind because you're taking the time, effort, energy, and resources to be able to make conscious choices about what you're giving. One of the big challenges in the ordained community here in Thailand, and I'm sure other parts of the world too, is that offerings that are being made aren't necessarily being made with this conscious effort. So we see foods that are being given that are heavy with meats and oils and sugars and salts and things like this that are being made with not necessarily the best quality materials. And because of this, we're seeing a lot of obesity in the ordained community. We're seeing a lot of diabetes and other problems because they can't choose what they eat. They have to accept whatever's given to them and eat that food, whether it's healthy or not, they have to eat whatever's given to them. So in terms of back to one of the teachings that the Buddha talked about being deficient in householders' duties, to be efficient or to be practicing in a conscious way when you're making offerings to individuals, particularly if you're making offerings of food, put some real conscious thought into what it is that you're offering, that you're not offering a bunch of oily, greasy, fatty foods. Maybe you're offering vegan food that is very healthy and nutritious. And that way, what you're giving to people is helpful and beneficial for their life so that the body can be nourished. And then the individuals who are sharing these teachings deeply, the virtuous practitioners, because that's what the Buddha talks about when he talks about making offerings, is making offerings to the mentally disciplined ones, the virtuous ones. Then their life can be longer and longer and longer and actually benefit the people longer period of time that they're able to share their teachings. Because an enlightened being, as they age, their mind actually doesn't regress. A person who's enlightened, their mind's gonna be just as sharp when they're 40 years old, if they got enlightened around that time, as it is when they're 80 or 90 years old. Typically, we associate the degrading of the mind and, and memory and wisdom 
with somebody getting old, but this is just somebody who hasn't trained their mind. If somebody's trained their mind well, as they age, that wisdom's still gonna be there. They're still gonna be with it, so to speak. They're still gonna be able to communicate about these teachings. If you look at the Buddha's teachings, you can't tell that he's actually aging through his teachings because his wisdom is and his mind is just as sharp and just as bright when he attained enlightenment at the age of 35 as it was when he gave his very last discourse at the age of 80. When he actually died, his very last words were just as penetrating and just as impactful with wisdom as any of his other teachings as well. So when we consciously provide offerings of food that are very healthy, which is what the Buddha is recommending here, then we're ensuring that this wisdom stays in the population of all of humanity for longer and longer periods of time. Because if you're supporting virtuous teachers and virtuous ordained practitioners who are mentally disciplined, either close to enlightenment or enlightened, then you're taking care of them with very healthy offerings to ensure that they're around for longer and longer periods of time. And this benefits everybody. And here, this is just one food that existed during the lifetime of the Buddha. But now you can take this same aspect of teaching and apply it to today. Maybe kanji is not very well known, it's not widely accessible anymore, particularly the way that it was made during the lifetime of the Buddha. But if you get in touch with what the Buddha is talking about here, is he's talking about offering nutritionist food. So today, like I mentioned, that would be vegetables, that would be fruits, uh, you may even offer vitamins to people. You know, some people take vitamins as part of maintaining their health. There's things like this that you can offer. And if we clean up the food that we're offering to teachers and ordained practitioners, then we'll see the health of our ordained community and our teachers improve so that that way uh, these individuals can be in existence for longer and share these teachings for longer periods of time. Because if somebody cultivates the wisdom of these teachings and they get enlightened at age 40, 45, but they died at 55, they're only able to help a certain amount of people. But if they can live for, you know, seven until 70, 80, 90 years old, they can actually help a whole lot more people. And that's what I would suspect that any population of people would be interested in doing is ensuring that the ordained practitioners are very healthy, that the teachers are very healthy, and this is going to ensure that the wisdom stays in the world for longer and longer periods of time. Whether you actually offer kanji or not is up to you. As I mentioned, if you look at the recipe, it actually looks like it was much more healthy during the lifetime of the Buddha. But instead, focus on making very healthy offerings to people if you're going to offer them food. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Um, does not appear there are any questions at this time, sir. Okay, so now we'll go to chapter 7. Yes, sir. Um, let's go to Tonka to read chapter 7, please. Thank you, Miranda. Chapter 7, the giver of the agreeable gains the, the agreeable. The giver of the agreeable gains the agreeable. When he gives willingly to the upright, one's clothing, bedding, food, and drink, and various kinds of supplies. Having known the arahants, to be like a field for what is relinquished and offered, not held back. The wholesome person what is hard to give. The giver of agreeable things gains what is agreeable. 
the giver of agreeable gains the agreeable, the giver of the foremost gains again gains the foremost, the giver of the excellent gains the excellent, the giver of the best reaches the best state. The person who gives the best, the giver of the foremost, the giver of the excellent is long-lived and famous, wherever he is reborn. Okay, thank you, Tonka. So let's take a look at this one quite closely. So first of all, the Buddha is talking about giving to the upright here, where he's talking about the otter hunts, right? He's talking about giving to individuals who are enlightened. That's what an otter hunt is. And he talks about not holding back and giving essentially what is hard to give. So if there's something in your life that you feel is hard to actually give, that's because the mind's craving. That's because the mind is holding on to it. So the Buddha is encouraging you to be able to give those kinds of things. Again, still with discernment, still in the middle way. But if there are certain things that it's a real struggle for you to let go of, then those are things that you should look at giving. So if you have a whole lot of clothes and shoes and purses or jewelry or things like this or money or different household supplies and things like this, if there are certain aspects of possessions that you have that you would feel diminished or that it would be very hard for you to give those things, then what the Buddha is explaining to you is you should find ways to give those things. So let's just say you had a huge wardrobe of clothes and you took great pride in dressing and looking really wonderful. What I would encourage you to do is kind of gradually, slowly give pieces of clothing to friends perhaps if they're if your friends would accept those kind of things or the goodwill or salvation army you don't have to go give it all at one time because it's actually better to give smaller batches because each time you have to kind of gather up a few articles of clothing drive to the salvation army and give them or to the goodwill and give them or a homeless shelter or a domestic abuse shelter or something like this each time you have the act of giving it's actually really good for cultivating qualities of your mind so rather than kind of gather up everything and give one big offering it's actually better to do it little by little and this is going to train the mind in a better way to let go so if you're finding that it's hard for you to let go of certain articles of clothing that's the things that you would like to practice generosity with because the mind's craving and holding on to those things the most tightly. The Buddha's, you know, essentially saying, don't hold back here, right? Of course, as we've talked about, there needs to be discernment and there needs to be this uh, middle way. But where you see the mind's holding on to something, that's an indication that there's a craving, desire, attachment there. And by you practicing generosity, it's going to help you to let that craving, desire, attachment go, thus helping you get closer and closer to enlightenment. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear there are any questions at this time, sir. Okay. So let's go to chapter 8. Yes, sir. Let's go to proceed to read chapter 8, please. Thank you, Marina. The way leading to wealth. Malika and some women, and still some women, is not prone to anger or often exasperated. 
Even if she is criticized a lot, she does not lose her temper and become irritated, hostile, and stubborn. She does not display anger, hatred, and bitterness, and she gives things to aesthetics or Brahmin, food and drink, clothing and vehicles, garlands, scents, and ointment, bedding, dwellings, and lighting. When she passes away from the state, from that state, if she comes back to this world, wherever she is reborn, she is beautiful, attractive, and graceful, possessing supreme beauty of complexion, rich with great wealth and property and influential. This is the way, student, the way that leads to health. Namely, one gives food, drink, clothing, carriages, garlands, scents, ointments, beds, dwellings, and lamps to ascetics or Brahmins. All right. Thank you, Chrissy. So here, the Buddha is talking to a woman about other women as well who aren't prone to anger, right? The people, this, uh, these women essentially have control of their mind. They aren't able to uh, lose their temper, become irritated, hostile, or stubborn. They don't display anger, hatred, and bitterness. But this is where you can also be quietly frustrated, right? As you're transforming the mind in the past where you might be have, have been overtly angry, hater, hateful, and bitter. Now, maybe as you're transforming the mind closer to enlightened, you're kind of quietly irritable or quietly angered. This is actually better than being overtly angry. And then as you get closer and closer to enlightenment, as the mind is enlightened, that'll be eliminated 100%. But in the process, there's this kind of quiet irritation that's going on in the mind that you're kind of working on to eliminate. So in this case, the Buddha is talking about individuals who are there that are quietly kind of irritated. They're not overtly irritated and they're not yet enlightened. And essentially what's leading to that ability for them to control their mind that way is that they practice generosity. They give food, drink, clothing, vehicles, garlands, scents, and ointments, bedding, dwellings, and lighting. That's essentially what the Buddha's describing here. And then he's saying, okay, well, if this person is going to be reborn, then they're going to experience this improved rebirth where they're beautiful, attractive, graceful. They have this beauty of complexion, rich, great wealth and property and influential. Now, the goal, as I've shared, is to get to enlightenment and never experience rebirth. But if you are reborn, having practiced generosity, not just because you're practicing generosity, but because you're eliminating craving, that's what's actually occurring. Anytime you can eliminate craving, you're also eliminating anger. And in order to eliminate that, you would have had to eliminate ignorance. So by eliminating the pollutions of mind, that's what's leading to the improved rebirth, not just because you're giving. It's not like you're buying your way to beauty. You're not buying your way to becoming more graceful. You're not buying your way to get more wealthy or more property or more influential. Instead, by having less craving, anger, and ignorance in the mind, there's less pollution. So therefore, you're going to be more successful in future lives if there is a need for a future life. But the ultimate goal would be to not experience a future life at all. So that's what the Buddha is explaining here. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? 
It does not either. Any questions at this time, sir? All right. So let's move to chapter nine. Yes, I'll read chapter nine. <clears throat> the generous one would surpass the other. Here, venerable sir, there might be two disciples of the perfectly enlightened one, equal in confidence, virtuous behavior, moral conduct, and wisdom, but one is generous while the other is not. With the breakup of the body after death, they would both be reborn in a good destination in a heavenly world. When they have become heavenly beings, would there be any distinction or difference between them? There would be Sumana. The perfectly enlightened one said, the generous one, having become a heavenly being, would surpass the other in five ways. In heavenly lifespan, heavenly beauty, heavenly happiness, heavenly glory, and heavenly authority. The generous one, having become a heavenly being, would surpass the other in these five ways. But, venerable sir, if these two pass away from there and again become human beings, would there still be some distinction or difference between them? There would be Sumana, the perfectly enlightened one said. When they again become human beings, the generous one would surpass the other in five ways. <clears throat> in human lifespan, human beauty, human happiness, human fame, and human authority. When they again become human beings, the generous one would surpass the other in these five ways. But, venerable sir, if these two should go forth from household life into homelessness, would there still be some distinction or difference between them? There would be Sumal. The perfectly enlightened one said, the generous one, having gone forth, would surpass the other in five ways. One, he would usually use a road that has been specifically offered to him, seldom one that had not been specifically offered to him. Two, he would usually eat alms food that has been specifically offered to him, seldom alms food that had not been specifically offered to him. <clears throat> Sorry. Three, he would usually use a lodging that had been specifically offered to him, seldom one that had not been specifically offered to him. Four, he would usually use medicines and supplies for the sick that had been specifically offered to him, seldom those that had not been specifically offered to him. Five, his fellow monastics, those with whom he resides, would usually behave toward him in agreeable ways by bodily, verbal, and mental action, seldom in disagreeable ways. They would usually present him with what is agreeable, seldom what is disagreeable. The generous one, having gone forth, would surpass the other in these five ways. But, venerable sir, if both attain our hardship, would there still be some distinction or difference between them after they have attained our hardship? In this case, Sumana, I declare there would be no difference between the liberation of one and the liberation of the other. It's outstanding and amazing, venerable sir, truly. One has good reason to give alms, a donation, and do meritorious deeds, since they will be helpful if one becomes a heavenly being, again becomes a human being, or goes forth. So it is, Sumana, so it is, Sumana. Truly, one has a good reason to give alms and do meritorious deeds, since they will be helpful if one becomes a heavenly being, again becomes a human being, or goes forth. This is what the perfectly enlightened one said. Having said this, the fortunate one, the teacher, further said this. As the stainless moon moving through the sphere of space outshines with its radiance all the stars in the world, 
So one accomplished in virtuous behavior, a person endowed with confidence, outshines by generosity, all the selfish people in the world. <clears throat> As the hundred peaked rain cloud, thundering, covered in lightning, pours down rain upon the earth, overwhelming the plains and the lowlands, so the perfectly enlightened one's disciple, the wise one accomplished in vision, surpasses the selfish person in five specific respects. Life-spanning glory, beauty, and peacefulness. Possessed of wealth, after death, he rejoices in heaven. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here, a student is asking the Buddha about two disciples, two people who are studying with him. They're both having equal amounts of confidence, moral conduct, or virtuous behavior, and wisdom. But one is generous, while the other one is not. And both of these individuals are reborn in the heavenly world. Now, oftentimes what the mind might think based on the previous chapters is where the Buddha is talking about generosity leads to rebirth in the heavenly world. So someone might say, well, hold on a second. How can you get to the heavenly world if you haven't practiced generosity? That's because these are the natural laws of existence and there's not just one thing. It's not like you can just practice generosity and that's what creates rebirth in the heavenly realm. There's lots of factors based on the natural law of gamma that determines whether one gets reborn into the heavenly realm or not. Rebirth in the heavenly realm is not ideal. That's not what one would be interested in because being reborn in the heavenly realm, oftentimes those beings are complacent because they're experiencing such a high degree of pleasant feelings. So discontentedness is those pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant. So in the heavenly realm, they're experiencing exclusively pleasant feelings. They don't experience any painful feelings and they don't experience any neither painful nor pleasant. These are actually the feelings that tend to motivate us in the human realm to actually learn and practice in order to get to enlightenment. So in the heavenly realm, because they only experience pleasant feelings, they're oftentimes very complacent and they lack motivation on the path to enlightenment. So the goal isn't to be reborn in heaven. And if somebody is reborn in heaven, it's not a permanent existence. And there's multiple ways that one might end up in the heavenly realm. And here, this particular example is one who has confidence, virtuous behavior, and wisdom with the practice of generosity. And the other one has confidence, good, wholesome conduct through their moral conduct and wisdom, but they're not practicing generosity. And the student is saying, okay, you know, is there any difference? And the Buddha is like, yes, there's absolutely a difference based on that rebirth, based on what they're doing now. The one who's generous is going to basically have a longer lifespan. They're going to have more beauty, more happiness, more glory, and more authority in that new existence. And then the student questions further and says, okay, well, from the heavenly realm, if they're reborn back to the human realm, which is very common that heavenly beings are reborn into the human realm, they can also be reborn down into the lower realms, into hell, animal realm, and afflicted spirit. They don't necessarily come back to the human realm. They can be reborn into those other realms as well. But should they come back into the human realm, this student is saying, okay, is there any difference there? And the Buddha's like, yes, they, there sure is. Once again, their lifespan, beauty, happiness, their fame and authority. And then the student asks further, like, okay, well, once they're in the human realm, if they decide to become ordained and go forth into this 
homeless life of being an aesthetic? Is there a difference there? And the Buddha's like, yes, there's an absolute difference. The one who's generous is going to, you know, essentially have robes or clothing that's offered to them. Uh, they're going to have food that's offered to them. They're going to have lodging that's offered to them. They're going to have medicines and supplies that can be used to overcome sicknesses. And they're also going to experience uh, people being agreeable towards them in bodily, verbal, and mental actions, that people are going to uh, essentially do wholesome things, that they're going to see that there's not much disagreeable conduct around them. So they're going to have essentially an even more peaceful life because people aren't being harsh and aggressive and vindictive towards them because they're being generous. So now the student says, okay, well, if they both attain arahanship, which is getting to enlightenment, you know, is there a difference there? And the Buddha says, no, there's no difference there. Because once two individuals become enlightened, they would have to have practiced all these teachings similarly, and generosity is one of those things. So the individual who wasn't practicing generosity, in order to get to arahanship, to enlightenment, they would have had to arise generosity in the mind and practiced it in order to get to enlightenment. But in those previous lives, maybe they weren't very generous. But now, as they're on the path and they're aspiring to get to enlightenment, they might choose to start being generous. They would need to choose to start being generous in order to get to enlightenment. And two enlightened beings, their mind is going to both have no discontentedness whatsoever. They're going to have eliminated that 100%. So the Buddha is saying, you know, they would be the same, essentially, because now they've both liberated their mind. And then the Buddha goes into, you know, kind of explaining that in kind of a little bit more of a poetic way, the way that he's explaining it. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear there are any questions at this time, sir. Okay. So now we're on chapter 10, which is the last chapter for today. Yes. Um, let's go to Tonka to read chapter 10, please. Thank you, Miranda. If beings knew the results of giving and sharing, monks, if beings knew, as I know, the results of giving and sharing, they would not eat without having given, not would the stain of selfishness obsess them and take root in their minds. Even if it were their last bite, their last mouthful, they would not eat without having shared it if there were someone to share it with. But because being, beings do not know, as I know, the results of giving and sharing, they eat without having given, and the stain of selfishness obsesses them and takes root in their minds. If beings knew what the perfectly enlightened ones said, how the result of sharing has such great fruit, then subduing the stain of selfishness with brightness, awareness, they would give in season to the noble ones where a gift brings great fruit. Having given food as an offering to those worthy of offerings, many donors, when they pass away from here, the human state go to heaven. They, having gone there to heaven, rejoice, enjoying sensual pleasures, and selfish, they take part in the result of sharing. All right. Thank you, Tonka. 
So here, let's talk about if beings knew the results of giving and sharing. What the Buddha is saying here is, if beings knew as I know, right? A Buddha understands what enlightenment is. They deeply understand it. And they're experiencing that peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. They're experiencing the focus, the concentration, the clarity of mind, the deep memory. They're experiencing all these benefits from having trained their mind to get to enlightenment. And what the Buddha is saying is if people understood what that mental state of enlightenment was and is, and they understood that it's generosity that's going to lead to that mental state, then they would not eat without having given. So even if it was their last mouthful, if it was the last food that they essentially had, if there was somebody to share it with, they would be willing to share it if they knew the results, if they knew what enlightenment was truly like. But you don't know what enlightenment's like until you actually experience it. You'll get glimpses of it as you get you know, closer and closer to it, you'll get these glimpses for longer and longer periods of time. But someone who's deep in their selfishness and they're experiencing that deep craving and obsessed, as the Buddha talks about here, having the selfishness obsessing their minds and taking root in their mind, they don't necessarily understand the whole aspects of craving anger and ignorance they don't understand the enlightened mental state they don't understand how generosity is going to lead to this improved condition of mind so oftentimes people hold on and they're not willing to practice generosity the buddha talks in the previous discourse he mentions how essentially selfish the world is and you might experience this in your own life that essentially because of the central desire the mind is essentially operating through its own selfish instincts and its own selfish desires the buddha is not saying the world is selfish as an, in a degrading way he's just talking about it in general like if you look around the world there's a, a lot of beings that are just pursuing what's good for them not interested in giving and sharing without any expectations of anything in return. So you would be interested to start to get more and more in touch with the real results of this enlightened mind and understanding that the practice of generosity is what's going to help you get closer and closer to that mental state of enlightenment. So as there's various opportunities for you to give and share, the Buddha is saying, take the opportunity to do that so that you can give and share. This is what's going to lead to the improved condition of mind. And once again, he's mentioning down here about rebirth in the heavenly realm, but we've covered that pretty extensively. That the only reason why that's occurring is because a craving, desire, attachment is being diminished. And the ultimate goal is not to get to the heavenly realm, but he's adding that in there because these different discourses, he would have spoke at different times. Even though we went through 10 individual teachings that are all about generosity, he might have discuss these you know over the course of five years or ten years at different times so he's needing to make sure that he includes that when he's talking about generosity and the practice of generosity so whoever he's talking to would understand because there would be different groups of people that he would have been delivering these different discourses to at any given time so he's going to be sure to include that aspect of 
the teachings into whoever he's talking to and whatever discourse he's delivering. So the more you understand this enlightened mental state and the more you see that your meditation and generosity is leading to that, essentially what the Buddha is saying is you'd be willing to give your last mouthful if there was somebody that was able to receive that from you if you just understood the results of this enlightened mind and what you will experience as you get to that enlightened mind. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Uh, yes, I'm Professor Pambers. Let's go to her question. Thank you, Miranda. Uh, I just want to confirm that I understand uh, this last paragraph uh, that in heaven they rejoice and enjoying sensual pleasures. So in heaven, it would be based uh, on conditional um, happiness. So they don't experience uh, like enlightenment state, which is uh, uh, not dependent uh, on any conditions. So it would be pleasure all the time, 100% of the time. Is it how that would translate? So the last part of what you said is 100% true, but there's one piece in there that you said that isn't quite true. So yes, heavenly beings are experiencing exclusively pleasant feelings, and it's conditioned pleasant feelings. It's discontentedness. So happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, and it's all conditional because as the Buddha is explaining here, is they're enjoying sensual pleasures. So they still have sensual desire in the mind, among other fetters as well. They still have these other fetters as well. But there are some beings who attain enlightenment in the heavenly realm, and there are some beings in the heavenly realm who are enlightened. But it's somewhat rare because they're oftentimes are lacking uh, motivation and encouragement and enthusiasm because they're enjoying so much sensual pleasures. So that's why it's really not a desirable place to be reborn. Sometimes people really want to be reborn in heaven, not just in other traditions that they think that that's the ultimate goal, but even in Buddhist teachings. Some people, particularly here in Thailand, they will tell you like my ultimate goal is to you know, be reborn in heaven and then get enlightened there. But there's no assurance that just because you're reborn in the heavenly realm that you will get to enlightenment. In the contrary, it's more likely that you won't get to enlightenment in the heavenly realm. It's actually more potential that you will get to enlightenment in the human realm because you have more motivation and you have more enthusiasm because of those painful feelings and the neither painful nor pleasant feelings. So, yes, heavenly beings are experiencing exclusively pleasant feelings, they're conditional pleasant feelings, and it's because they have this central desire in the mind. But uh, there are enlightened beings there, and you can get to enlightenment there, but it's actually less likely than in the human realm. Oh, thank you. Also, um, I, I was wondering um, uh, when it comes to generosity, like in modern days, like I feel that we are uh, we have to be responsible for our self-meaning to save for rainy days, to save for our retirement, and uh, so uh, how to how to combine all of that? So we have to make sure that we have some money on the side and saving for retirement and. Uh, practicing generosity and being able to pay our, all our bills. 
So I, I'm just not sure because I didn't hear a lot uh, being talked about uh, uh, saving. Yeah. We're, we're not to those chapters yet, Tonka. So here, this is the first 10 where the Buddha is setting things up, and that's what's put into the first 10 chapters. But as you get deeper into this book, you'll see that the Buddha talks about ensuring that you're essentially your whole first, that you're taking care of with your necessities to sustain life, that your immediate family, like your, your life partner, your children, people like this, your relatives. And he goes through this whole list of people, and he puts himself is last and he says okay when all these other people are satisfied then when you have additional resources then perhaps you might decide to offer them to him oh, he didn't say me but he says aesthetics right so the generosity that you can practice just pure generosity not merit but you could include merit too because it's time effort energy and resources you can do this without necessarily exhausting your own resources you can uh, practice giving your time your effort your energy like i mentioned to you like i go give blood right it costs me some money to drive to the place to donate the blood uh, and then i have to buy kind of extra food for several days afterwards to be sure i replenish the body but otherwise it doesn't cost me any money at all so yes what i've talked about is sharing and practicing generosity uh, with discernment in the middle way. But when you see more of the Buddhist teachings, he talks about this uh, more exhaustively as he goes through. And then he even teaches the ordained practitioners and teachers to not what he calls milk dry. This was a chapter that we talked about last week in our class as he teaches teachers not to essentially uh, deplete a household practitioner's resources. So there's been situations where people have been interested to make offerings to me, but I know that their spouse just got laid off from work and they're interested in making offerings to me. And I usually have a conversation and there's been some situations where I've uh, suggested to a student not to make offerings to me uh, because they're in kind of a bit of a limbo. And then after about a month or two, you know, their financial stabilized, they brought it back up again that they would like to make offerings. And we revisited the topic about whether or not they're able to do that. So there's always needs to be discernment in everything that you do, including generosity. And you just haven't seen enough of the Buddhist teachings yet that will inform you about those kind of things. But he's teaching household practitioners to use discernment and make sure that they're whole. And he's also teaching the teachers to ensure that they're not, you know, drying out the resources of a household practitioner. Because how could you get to peacefulness and joy if you would have exhausted your resources and not able to sustain your own life? You need to be able to do the things that you talked about, like saving for retirement, saving for other situations that you encounter and things like this. This is what's going to help ensure you have some stability and a foundation under you and you can get to that peacefulness and joy where if you were living paycheck to paycheck and you were also you know, giving excessively, then that's going to be very difficult for you to get the peacefulness and joy. But even in situations where people are living paycheck to paycheck, there should be some amount of generosity that someone can practice because remember 
you know, opening the door for somebody is generosity. You know, picking up a, a paper that's fallen out of someone's purse, that's generosity. These kind of things is what you should keep in mind that it's not just giving money. Sometimes, depending on what tradition we've been brought up in, we might think that the practice of generosity is just giving money and that's it. But your practice of generosity should be much broader than that because that's what you're going to need in order to train the mind to let go of craving, desire, attachment. If you're attached to your clothes, for example, you're going to need to give some clothes away. If you're attached to furniture, you're going to need to give that away. If you're attached to your home and you don't want people coming into your home and you live by yourself and you don't can't imagine other people coming and staying at your home, you'll need to train your mind to be willing to allow some people to come and stay with you sometimes. This is what's going to help you to let go of your craving, desire, attachment. So think of generosity and the practice of merit as much broader than just finances and money. Okay. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. And you'll see more teachings as we go deeper into this book. And there's already been some teachings in some of the other books that the Buddha expands a lot of these topics. Thank you, sir. Um, something that you said there in answering Pompa's questions, there's a bit of confusion in my mind. You said that there are sometimes enlightened beings in the heavenly realm. How is this possible, sir? So from the heavenly realm, beings can get to enlightenment. And when you get to enlightenment, you don't just die right away, just like a human being. So as a heavenly being, if you get to enlightenment, you're not going to just evaporate. You're still going to exist in the heavenly realm throughout that lifespan. And then once you get to the end of that lifespan, then you will escape the cycle of rebirth or you have escaped the cycle of rebirth as part of getting to enlightenment. So now you exist for however long in the enlightened mental state in the heavenly realm. And then at the end of that life, there won't be any further rebirth. Okay, I understand now. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. For some reason. In my mind, if a heavenly being got to enlightenment, they would just cease to exist. Poof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, sir. Now I understand. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, it does not appear there are any other questions this time, sir. Okay. Well, I would like to thank all of you for participating in the class. And, you know, this is generosity, you know, Miranda moderating, uh, you guys participating in this community in the various ways that you guys do. I would like to thank you for your time, your effort, your energy and resources that you share with this community and with me to be able to actually share these teachings. Because without the support of the community, I wouldn't be able to exist in this life to be able to then share the teachings with you guys. So your generous offerings of time, effort, energy, and resources are helping this community to be able to learn these teachings. Because if I was having to have a career and do this at the same time, it would be very challenging. And I did that for about a year and a half while I was kind of getting into teaching and sharing these teachings. And I did it. It was challenging, overcame that challenge, and then the community built up to a point where I could do this full time. Uh, but still, you know, sometimes it's quite a challenge to live through just donations. But you guys make that a little bit easier through your time, effort, energy, and resources to build up our community. So I would like to thank all of you guys. And 
perhaps what you experience coming back to you is you know just extreme dedication from your teacher to be able to help you and be willing to contribute to your life by sharing these teachings by giving away resources for free having these classes spending personal time with you being very detailed in the answers that i provide you both online in the facebook group through written replies and through uh, these classes as well so Thank you for your dedication and your diligence to learning and practicing and practicing generosity. And that motivates me even more so than I already am to be dedicated and practicing in a way that ensures you get the teachings that you need to help you. So next week, we're going to be going further into this book. We're going to be in chapters 11 through 20. So you guys can read those ahead of time if you'd like, or if for some reason you don't have an opportunity, you can just come to class and we'll study them right here in the class. So that can be helpful for you as well. Tomorrow in the group learning program, I'm going to be sharing with you the next class of the retreat series, Harmony and Relationships, that retreat series that I'm doing each Sunday throughout the rest of this year. The class tomorrow is all about developing and acquiring concentration and ensuring that you are able to develop singleness of mind. This will be a really helpful class for you because one of the major factors of getting to enlightenment and practicing the Eightfold Path is right concentration. So we're going to put that under a microscope and I'm going to show you exactly how to cultivate right concentration, helping you to understand the problems that you encounter when you don't have concentration, but then also teaching you what the benefits are of how of once you've cultivated concentration, what are the actual benefits of that? And then I'm going to teach you how to actually cultivate right concentration through practicing singleness of mind and various aspects of the path. And then this Wednesday, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation together as a group. So you're welcome to participate in that either live or on one of the replays. So thank you all for your time, effort, energy, and resources to share with this community for your dedication and determination to practice these teachings. I'll see you in a future class. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.